Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast, episode number 333. This is your host, Peter Renton, chairman and co-founder of Lender FinTech. Before we start today's episode, I want to tell you about a new event from Lendit Fintech. Nexus, the Dealmakers Summit, is all about making deals. We'll be bringing together a select group of venture capitalists, bankers, fintechs, and debt investors for two days of face-to-face meetings in Miami on February 7th and 8th. Also at Nexus will be Lendit's famous industry awards show, back in person for the first time since 2019. You can find out more about all our upcoming events at lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Phaedra Ellis Lampkins. She is the CEO and co-founder of Promise. Now, Promise is a super interesting company, and they've stumbled on something that is in high demand. Like when we we go to pay for something today, there's so many buy now, pay later options that you have available to you, often without even a credit check. But if you're dealing with a government agency or a utility, those flexible payment options are simply unavailable. And what uh, Promise is trying to do is change that and make it so that it's just as easy to pay a retailer with all the different payment methods that they offer as it is to pay a government department, pay a, a utility, and the end users are often people who are really living paycheck to paycheck, who are struggling to pay the bills they need to live. And they've made it so it's super easy for these people. As you'll find out on the episode, they make the pay in pretty much any payment method you can imagine. And then these people can pay off some of the debts that they have in whatever method they choose and oftentimes in a payment plan that is tailored just to their needs. It really was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Phaedra. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So let's get started um, by giving the listeners a little bit of background about yourself. Would love to kind of talk about some of the things you've done in your career to date before Promise. So I actually started in the labor movement. I was a union organizer and spent 13 years. I ended up leading a labor federation focused on improving the lives of working people through unions. And then I became really interested in the fact that the labor movement was really struggling with issues of having a good job and having a climate change and how to deal with global warming. And so we used to joke, we never met a road we didn't like. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just was concerned about the impacts, especially on communities of color. And so wanted to understand how did you build good jobs that were also good for the environment? And so ended up going to run an organization called Green for All, started by my friend Van Jones, who ended up going into the Obama administration. And from there, ended up working for the musician Prince, which was a really interesting time. And after working for Prince, what was very clear to me is that technology was harmful for many people. Technology had been not great for working people in the labor movement. I saw it also in the environmental movement. And then it became clear in music, it was devaluing content and especially impacting musicians and musicians of color. And so I wanted to understand how tech worked and spend some time with some venture capitalists thought I might go into venture. And then I just realized all day you sit around and talk to people and <laughs> wasn't an interesting model. One of the investors I met with at Capor had suggested working with a company. And so I ended up running revenue and operations at a company called Honor, uh, which does home care officially in Unicorn. And I'm on the board now of Honor. And then I just was really interested in the fact that in a lot of these marketplace companies, 
you often have to make a choice between you know, lower wages or higher pricing. And so I wanted to understand how to build a company that wasn't stuck in that real challenge of how do you deal with those issues. Right. That is a really interesting background. You're the first person I've had on who actually worked for Prince or any famous musician. That's uh, And Van Jones is also quite the celebrity these days as well. He is. He yeah. Is. So anyway, let's pivot to the founding story for Promise. Can you give us sort of what led to you starting the company? I'd always wanted to use technology in a way that was helpful to working people and to people of color. I just want to understand how to use it. And so the first thing we wanted to understand is, can technology be good for people? And is it just that the technology that has been created is created by people that are not thinking about how does it impact a low-income mom? And that's what I learned at Honor was that you could have technology used in a different way. And so Promise was really started with the thesis of if you created software that had working people and people of color at the core, you could build technology that was good for them. And so also focused on government because we thought that was the entity that was most likely to care about the things that we cared about. Promise was launched in 2018. We went through Y Combinator co-founded it with a woman named Diana Frappier, who I'd worked with for 13 years. Uh, She's a lawyer by trade, a criminal defense lawyer. And um, so she was just very committed to issues around the criminal justice system. And we had also both loved people who had dealt with addiction and mental health issues. And so the criminal justice system seemed very important. So originally when we launched Promise, we were focused on reforming the bail system, working with governments to figure out how to deal with people on bail. What we quickly realized is we did not love our clients. And the real issue was we were trying to convince governments to think about why it made sense to let people out who were just poor. And governments, unfortunately, people that were some of our clients, they got paid per person per day. And so if you're a sheriff running a jail and you get paid per person per day, your incentive is not to get people out as quickly as possible. Your incentive is to build a system that keeps people in. That's really how we started. We had some early success decided that wasn't the right thing to do. And then we were really lucky. I went back to our investors. We had enough money where we could pay them back and said, hey, we don't. this isn't what I want to do. I'd just been in a trip in the South and met with some folks. And I just said, these can't be our clients. And our investors said, nope, keep the money. We believe in you. We want you to do what you think is important. We knew you never were going to do something that you thought was predatory. And the thing that struck me is I'd been in New Orleans and a couple other places And we saw that people were going to jail for parking tickets and tickets in general. And that seemed insane that, you know, people were in jail really because they couldn't afford to pay something. And so we started the company. We first went to government in a way that sometimes we only can do when you've been in tech for a while with lack of hubris and said, hey, we want to work with you and help figure out how you make payments work better for parking tickets. And they said, no, you yahoos, we are not working with you. (laughs) And so we just said, cool, we're going to scrape your system and we'll pay the tickets and we'll have direct relationships with people to figure it out. Then they're like, okay, wait. (laughs) 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 Um, And we had a 93% repayment rate, which was incredible considering we had no information about people. And so that's how really the business started is thinking through how to uh, make sure that people could do installment plans in the same way you do for a Peloton or anything else that you could do it for government debt. When I first came across your company, it always, it struck me that it's such a simple idea that, you know, you can pay installments, particularly now in the buy now, pay later age that we live in, everything can be paid in installments, except for things like government 
fines and that sort of thing. I can see the the need is out there for sure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you offer, how it actually works and the products you offer? If you think about our products in two ways, one, there are ways in which we do basically buy now, pay later, which is you're buying a government, you know, a water bill, a child support payment. You're able to keep your electric on, your water on so that it doesn't get shut off. The easiest way to think about it is an interest-free installment plan. And so our software manages the debt for a government entity. So in a place like Louisville Water, before we got there, they had a couple hundred people on payment plans, very low repayment rate. Now they have, I think the last thing I checked, we had 12,000 people in Louisville on payment plans or installment plans. And you might have a debt of $1,000. You either have to pay it off and get your water shut off, or you can put it onto an installment plan with us. And that $1,000 might get broken down into 10 monthly payments of $100. You really depend. And then it's managed by software largely and continues to have above a 90% repayment rate. And so that's our first product, which is installment plans, interest-free installment plans for government. And what we provide for the government is we can now predict how much money we're going to actually get back, when it comes back, what cadence. So they have consistency, money they can count on, reliability. And so in a place like Louisville, for our clients, they stopped using collection agencies which for us also feels good. I know. Yeah, it's great. And then there's a product we do, which is to provide aid. And because of COVID, there's a lot of money, especially coming from the federal government. And so what we've done is to do two things. One is automate the process of receiving aid. So it used to be, you'd have to come into an office, you'd have to prove that you were poor, you'd have to have taxes. And what's insane about that system is no one's getting cash. It's just going towards your water bill as a credit. So the water company has an incentive to make it as easy as possible instead of as hard as possible. And so now you can self-attest, yes, I qualify, and we're able to give away millions and millions of dollars very quickly. And we are then able with the Delta to put that into an installment plan. And so it's been very effective. So we do the easy to receive aid. We do our installment plans. And in some places now we do all payments because governments came to us and said, hey, it's so easy for you to do these installment plans. We like that you send text-based reminders that you can take Venmo or Cash App. We want that for all payments, not just for people who are on installment plans. That's really interesting then. That's where I find like the whole idea of paying like your water bill with Cash App. That's not something that you see, (laughs) but people are using Cash App multiple times a day to send money back and forth to their friends or whatever. So that's really interesting. So then let's take the water utility as an example. Your client is the water utility. Do you sort of plug into their website? How does the tech actually, is it an API-based system? What is it? Yeah, it depends on the client because in some places we have smaller clients like Marin County, California versus we just won the RFI in Washington, D.C. as an example. The tech really depends on who we're working with. So in some places it's API. In some places it's sending over a flat file. It really depends on the people that we're working with. The person who leads our implementation led a a team at Palantir until the Trump administration came in. And so we've been lucky to have a pretty skilled team at helping figure out some of these issues. Mm -hmm. So someone's a customer of the water utility. They're receiving information from you. They're receiving communications from you. Yeah. Yeah. Do they go to a promise pay webpage or is it a water utility webpage to pay? Yeah, both. So what it looks like is we send someone a text message because we have the payment files. You know, we we can do our own query and might also receive a note by mail. It would be on your bill and it would be on their website. Most often people click a link and then it's a subscription payment. 
And so you don't have to necessarily every month go in and make it. It's that first payment. And most people pay by text, meaning they get a link through text. They click on the link and they enroll that way. But certainly some people go to our clients' websites or to our website, but most enrollment is done by text. Do you make all the payment methods imaginable available? Like Absolutely. So what about cash? Can people pay by cash? They can. The thing we've learned though is that as we get better at data, we start to learn about the cadence of cash, right? So for example, if you make cash on payment one, we know you're most likely to fail in repayment. And so that means that if you're doing cash, it means you need a different type of responsiveness and support in the payment plan. So the thing we want to do is to encourage, that's why I think apps are so critical for non-cash payments. And I think it's because it takes the most amount of work. Even if we make it easy where you can walk into a 7-Eleven or walk into some other local grocery store or walk into the government, it still tends to be the payment that's most likely to fail. Interesting. I'm curious to know that you said they went from like a very low repayment rate to a very high repayment rate when you came in. What do you attribute that to? Is it like, is you have an empathetic approach, I imagine? And what, yeah. How do you do that? It's so interesting. So we hired the chief data evangelist from Looker. And the reason is because we wanted to make sure we had a really strong data team that could understand these things. Originally, our thesis was people pay us back at high rates because they think we're the government. But what we discovered is people pay us back much more than they pay back the government directly. Then I think our thesis was, oh, it's because we are kind. And the reality is we assume that you don't want your water shut off. We assume you don't want to go to jail. And most repayment options for government are very punitive. If you don't do this, you will go to jail and you fail Friday at five. And so even if you look at payment plans, the assumption is most of them are run by things like Oracle. And so it's one structure. If you don't pay Friday at five, you fail, you face the consequences. We have an ability. You can extend for two weeks without talking to someone. It is not just empathy. I think it's empathy in design. And we assume that people want to pay instead of building a system that is punitive in nature. Right, right. And then I imagine just having all the different payment methods make it so easier, much, much easier. And then it's easier to do that than to go onto any of the government's websites, which I imagine, uh, you know, I went and renewed my uh, registration the other day and man, it's just like the website is like it was created back in the nineties and it wasn't user-friendly. You had to really search for where to pay. So I imagine for you guys, you've done a lot of work on what actually does generate the right response. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. It's even basic things like on our site, having a banner that says pay here, which most folks don't. You have to search and you have to try to figure out where, and then you have to have your bill number. Like it's a very complicated system. In some places they don't actually have, even if you find yourself how much you owe. So we were seeing people mispay because they didn't know exactly what they owed. And that has huge implications in the criminal justice system. And so all of our design is focused on making the system as easy to use and being intuitive. And we assume that people are working multiple jobs, don't have consistent income, managing an incredibly hard set of circumstances. And so our job is to make it as easy as possible to pay, which is what we do with people who have money, right? Like if you have money, we're like, in 10 seconds, you can figure out if you qualify for a home equity line. But if you don't have money, you have to come into an office, show a copy of your taxes, have a cashier's check. It just, it doesn't make sense. Putting all these barriers up to make it harder. You've touched on a little bit, but I'd love to kind of get your sense of the profile of these people. I mean, do these people, I presume they have some income coming in. What do you know about the typical kind of end user? Most of our end users are working people. 
And the only group of folks we see that are not working tend to be people who are older, which I have to say is heartbreaking. We see a lot of seniors who are living on fixed income, social securities and pensions who need to wait for the check to hit. And we can see at the end of the month that they are having to make decisions about food and basic necessities. And so we see a lot of seniors and a lot of people on fixed incomes that are pensions or retirement, some type of retirement. But the largest group is really working people with not consistent income who've been especially impacted by COVID. We always see these like stories of people leaving their jobs. And I think it's interesting to read a lot of things. You would think that, you know, people are in abundance with all this federal money and we just don't see that happening. So we see a lot of working people with inconsistent income who are trying to manage childcare, transportation. They're one crisis away from complete financial destruction. And COVID was that crisis for a lot of people. And so mostly working people, what would be considered working class, depending on where you are, you know, being working class is a little different in Louisville than it is in Los Angeles or San Francisco. We look at income, but it's mostly folks who are working, who are struggling, who are largely kind of one paycheck away from poverty. And that paycheck missed was really COVID. And then some folks who are just on a fixed income. Right, right. Got it. So then when you're working with these people, I'm curious just about like, are they recovering now or are they still in dire straits? We talk internally about how it's shocking to see the national narrative versus the reality of the people that we are serving as clients because our clients are still struggling. One of the things that we now do is we roll in current bills because people are paying us at such a higher rate for installment plans. Governments have said to us, we want you to also manage their current bills. You know, we see that in the assumption, for example, that you have to pay on the 12th of every month, and that doesn't work with people's income anymore. And a a lot of people manage their income in a way where they skip monthly payments, right? Like I can pay this bill because it won't go into chaos in January, but I'm skipping February because I actually have 45 days before it actually means they're going to shut it off. And so we see a lot of that. And so part of what we think about is how is our software built in such a way that it manages the reality of the way that people pay and the reality of their income? Because- most products assume that people live on a fixed, steady income that comes monthly or biweekly, and that's just not our experience. It's very inconsistent. Interesting. So then what's it like selling this service to government departments or big utilities? I love the story that you sold. Well, we're just going to scrape your site anyway. I mean, how do you actually close the deal? And is it, um, it's a long cycle, I imagine. Just walk us through that process. We've grown a lot because of COVID, and I think we're starting to see the cycle slow down a bit more. I think in some places, we've launched with Baltimore, started kind of pre-conversation. And one thing is like half the folks are behind on bills. So as an entity, if half your population is not paying consistently, you need to figure that out just from cash flow perspective. And so I think for government entities, we don't threaten people We want them to succeed. The worst thing that happens is we send someone back to the local government. It's a low risk proposition for most governments to work with us because there's been a case study about our work that the U.S. Water Alliance did in the case of water utilities. We have good relationships with all of our clients. And so for governments, it's moved pretty rapidly. Our average sales cycle right now is about six months, which is very quick for government. And my guess is it's going to get longer over the next year. And I think as we grow, it mostly looks like inbound because we haven't really had a sales team before the last couple of months. We got one this morning as an example, a call from a city, major city, 
they call and say, we're interested in the solution. We talked to someone, we heard about what you're doing. Then they talk to someone on the phones, hear more about it. But because there's been some public things written about our work, it tends to be people have a sense of what it works. Governments also talk to each other a lot. So our best salespeople have been peer-to-peer sales. Interesting. Interesting. So then what's your business model? I presume you're charging, is it a SaaS fee? Are there also success fees like transaction fees? What's the model? We charge a SaaS fee, a subscription fee, an integration fee, and a transaction fee. Okay. But it's all paid for by? The government. In most places, it's paid for by the government. In some places, what they do is match like whatever payment they had before. So like in Marin County's example, we just said, we're going to beat what you used to have. We want to be cheaper than what someone was paying before. And in that place, we're doing current payments. So that's all payments as an example. It's not installments. So it's just someone comes to their site to make a payment. So if you went to Marin County's probation department, the only way you could make a payment right now is through us. Interesting. Do you have an app that people are, are using for this or is it all sort of like browser-based, obviously probably mobile-centric, I imagine, but what is the actual technology? Yeah, we don't do an app. And the reason we don't do an app is because a lot of people that we work with have constrained data. And so even though it seems beautiful and it would be so exciting and people ask for it, (laughs) even though everyone's like, do you have an app? And we're always like, no, because we don't think people will actually use it. And also for some of our clients, their criminal justice, like I don't think people should want everyone getting information. And we think about people's privacy and what we're tracking. And so we don't have an app. I don't know that we will never, but I can't imagine right now why we would need one. Right. So I presume most people use your website via a phone. Is that a fair, is that fair to say? Definitely. Mobile is definitely. And what's interesting is it's mobile and then phone and then web, direct from a computer. Mobile then phone? What do you mean? Meaning that people like either use the automated system or they call and talk to someone. Oh, because I see. we do see a number of seniors. Like we definitely have a diverse age population for some folks, either because of language or because of age or resource. We still have a number of people who call us on phones. Right. Do you have an automated system there where they, or do you have to, they talk to somebody? It depends. In some places it's different. In some places that are smaller or they want very low cost, there is an automated system. In some places, it might be if you call Louisville Water, they might transfer you to someone and then it might automate sending you a text. It really just depends on the way that we have a relationship with the local jurisdiction. Right, right. Where are you on the journey towards profitability? Are you still a long way off or are you breaking even? Where are you at? We are on the journey to profitability. We have a decent amount of money in the bank and we've just been trying to figure out, you know, how do we think about scale? Because we have an execution challenge different than a sales challenge. And so we're really focused. I think we are going to destroy our path to profitability and just grow so that we can meet demand. Okay. So can you give us a sense of the scale you're at? Like how many people on the team today? 50-ish. And we are at the end of a process for a state, which is going to make that team, you know, just not relevant in terms of growth. And it's pretty funny. You haven't even really started selling it. And that's no, we just like, we've had one real full-time salesperson and that's where water grew so much because we hired one person out of utilities. We just hired someone into the criminal justice space who will start in February. And so considering if you think about the fact that Buffalo has been passed and, you know, our clients are in Virginia and Richmond and Alexandria, San Francisco, Alameda, Marin, Los Angeles, Long Beach, you know, like considering we don't have a large, you know, sales team, it's been incredible, especially because it's government. 
Right, right. So then tell us about your investors. Like you obviously have a good relationship with your investors when you went to them and said, we don't want to do this anymore. We're going to pivot over to something else. But just maybe talk about what they're providing you beyond just the capital. We've actually not really been to the market, except for Sweat Equity and Howard Schultz. All of our investors have been with us since the seed. And so that I feel very, very lucky that way. First round led our seed, Bill Trenchard, who I adore, and Kapor, Mitch Kapor, and Rock Nation participated, Y Combinator, uh, Michael Seibel, both personally and through YC, and ABC, and uh, Village, now XYZ, through Ross Fubini, who's really great, and then Sweat Equity now and Howard Schultz. We feel really lucky that we've had investors, you're right, that when I called them, I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> they were like, we get it. We always knew who you were. You know, no question. We don't want our money back. Go figure it out. And I also think they've been patient. Cap. I mean, I guess it's not that patient. 2018, it feels like 100 years, but it's three years. <laughs> right. um, it was like a thousand years. But I, I think having patient capital when you are looking to solve large world problems is important. And people who had the capacity to be able to say, I was like, I think we're doing this wrong and I don't want to work with these people and I don't like this stuff that could respond. And it's part of why we've never been to the market because I have a huge amount of respect for the investors we have and they've created a lot of space to think about these. And not all investors, I mean, most investors would say, hey, we want you to loan people money as an example, right? Like that clearly is a market we could get into, predatory lending. And the fact that we're like, nope, and we don't even want people to really have to pay transaction fees because we think that is actually not great and regressive. And, and as we think about these things, I think it's different for a company to think about those things. I, I believe a for-profit company can only scale in the way that we want. But I think the decisions we've made as a company are long-term decisions, not short-term decisions. And having investors who understand that and believe in our vision has been really, really important. And so, you know, we will probably continue to stay with our current because they've just continued to increase their investment in the company. Okay. Interesting. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about diversity. I mean, you're a woman of color, you're mm -hmm. a fintech CEO. Yeah. There's not that many people out there like you. What's been your experience? I mean, it sounds like you've got good relationships with investors, but just talking to government departments, I mean, how are you feeling like, is the world changing <laughs> and what more can be done to make more people of color really bring them into the fintech space? One, I was really lucky that I was at a company that had good investors at Honor and an incredible founder and Seth Sternberg who created the space for me to win. And I think because I ran revenue, it made it much easier to raise. So I just want to say, I know I had an unusual experience. I had no tech experience. I went to Cal State Northridge. I didn't, didn't know anyone who went to Stanford. I never heard people talk about their colleges as though that was a big thing. Um, <laughs> it was like, wait, weirdos. Um, it just seems so bizarre for adults to talk about where they went to college. But I think I had an unusual experience. And then I went into probably a tier A startup. And then, then I was an exec. And then I did well. And so that put me in a space, I think, that most people don't have. And I just want to, one, realize how lucky that is. And so having Honor raise $20 million as a seed. So when I went to raise, and I was obviously part of the team raising as we continue to grow, when I raised, I was like, what do you mean a $20 million valuation? You've, you've insulted me. That's disgusting, even though I have nothing and no team, because my only model was Honor. And so I just didn't know different. And so 
one, I had relationships with investors to my only sense of how fundraising is supposed to go was from honor where people were inbound. So I was like, this is how it's supposed to operate. So I think one, having that context was really important. I don't see a lot of black, brown founders and especially black. And part of it is because the systems are so awful and venture is just not one. A lot of the models I see are predatory because there aren't a lot of people who are coming from, you know, communities of color or poor communities where they are thinking about solutions that way. So one of the reasons we don't go to the market also is because I feel like every investor is going to ask me, you should start lending people money and you would have incredible. And I'm just like, no, I'm not lending people 36% interest, which is the only way you can figure it out to make money. But that is the model. And then I just don't think that the venture has yet recognized people's brilliance that doesn't look like their own. And so it's a lot of pattern recognition. And I definitely haven't found my community in fintech. It isn't, I don't talk to a lot of other CEOs in fintech. I don't know what's going on. I think of it as like as financial services and as keeping people out of poverty and, and helping people manage their lives. Look, we've raised $50 million. We have clients. We're you know building successfully. We have a lot of money in the bank. Those are the signs that would be success. I literally couldn't tell you. I don't. I haven't been to a fintech conference. I don't, I don't know that anyone knows we exist. And so I would say, even I think as we kind of by traditional standards have been successful, I have no idea about what happens in fintech. I haven't found a welcoming community. And I would say that probably by most fintech standards, we're pretty successful. So I can't imagine what it's like starting out. And I can't imagine what it's like for other folks. And so I think in order for people to succeed, there has to be one more examples to communities that are much more welcoming. I feel like the best thing I can do for other founders is to win. And that's why I'm just like heads down. All I got to do is if I can win at venture scale, right? Not win at like creating a consulting business or win at this, but win at venture scale. It means that there's a model that's not predatory, that is run by a black woman who didn't go to Stanford or Harvard. And then people will say, oh, the pattern can look different. I want to win so that people say we built a company that built legacy wealth, not just like did good. And so I try to be really purposeful also about like, venture returns. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? Interesting. Well, of course, you did actually speak at our virtual event earlier this year. So you have been to a virtual conference. We really hope that you'll come to one of our in-person conferences in the near future. You're certainly welcome. But anyway, last question. What are you working on now? What's on tap for next year for Promise? Growth. (laughs) Growth, growth, growth. That's all I'm thinking about is growth. You know, we want to be at a certain ARR next year, And so I just want to grow. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there. Phaedra, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really a fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. See ya. You know, I love talking to fintech founders who have, you know, taken an idea that uh, is, you know, not being relatively common, but really built it into this use case that is unique. And, you know, it's a pretty massive market that Phaedra and her team are going after here and that people have, I wouldn't say ignored, but they certainly haven't been paying as much attention to as other areas. And what we can see is that, you know, there's no reason why paying a parking ticket or paying your utility bill shouldn't be as easy and with as many varied options as it is to go buy, you know, a pair of shoes at Macy's or what have you. I feel like we should be able to bring, you know, the flexibility 
that technology now offers to the government. And that's obviously what Phaedra and her team are doing. And I'm excited for them. I think it's a great idea. And, you know, she's certainly got a lot of wind in her sails. And uh, I think they're going to be doing very, very well. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening. And I'll catch you next time. Bye. Before we go, I want to remind you about a new event from Lendit Fintech. Nexus, the Dealmakers Summit, is all about making deals. We'll be bringing together a select group of venture capitalists, bankers, fintechs, and debt investors for two days of face-to-face meetings in Miami on February 7th and 8th. Also at Nexus will be Lendit's famous industry award show, back in person for the first time since 2019. You can find out more about all our upcoming events at lendit.com.